from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Millicent, joins me to discuss the discomfort by some within the Democratic Party establishment. Are the 18 presidential candidates seeking the office not viable when it comes to defeating President Donald Trump in 2020? That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to The Public Morality. When famed humorist Will Rogers stated, I am not a part of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. Some may conclude that Rogers had an eye on the 2020 presidential election. With a high mark of 27, there are currently 18 individuals seeking to be the Democratic Party standard bearer against President Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Most recently, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick entered the Democratic fray. In 2018, citing the cruelty of the process, Patrick declared he would not be a candidate for president. But some 11 months later, he has had a change of heart. What slice of the Democratic Party will Patrick appeal that is not currently occupied by the other 17 candidates? Joining me to discuss the Democratic Party's presidential politics is Chris Liu. Lou has worked on numerous campaigns, including the presidential campaigns of John Kerry in 2004 and Barack Obama in 2008. He served as Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama and is currently a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Chris Lou, welcome to The Public Morality. It's great being on. Uh, let's begin. How, how do you currently assess the Democratic race right now as it stands? Well, I think, look, there's clearly a top tier, but I think it's fluid. And that's not surprising. Uh, you know, most voters uh, are only now beginning to engage, even in the early states. Uh, most um, candidates haven't really spent time outside of those first four early states. And so, uh, you know, there, there's clearly a top tier, but I think it's a fluid situation right now. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if somebody from, you know, the quote-unquote second tier makes a move up. Well, all, all, all told, but by my count, um, there have been uh, 27 individuals representing the Democratic Party in varying degrees of probability in terms of securing the nomination have thrown their hat into the ring. I think there's currently 18, if my math is correct. Um, doesn't, with that number of people in the race, doesn't that sort of uh, insulate the presumed uh, front runners in the race? Well, I mean, you know, if you had gone back a couple of months ago, you would have said the presumed front runner was Vice President Biden. And I think if you look nationally at polls, he probably is still nominally a front runner. Uh, but I think, you know, you have seen movement. You've seen uh, Elizabeth Warren, who uh, didn't start that well, but has now moved up and is either one or two. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, who I think most people would have struggled to know who he was a year ago, uh, is now leading at least one poll in in Iowa. So um, it, it is, um, you know, it is an open competition at the moment. And it's what makes this process so interesting, because uh, these candidates, no matter how accomplished their resumes are, 
are, are going around places in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, going hand to hand, person to person to meet people uh, and make their case. And, 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 and with that, though, just, just uh, does the uh, impeachment uh, uh, inqu- inquiries on the House play uh, into the race in that it, it sort of stifles um, the conversations that are happening elsewhere? Or, or are those just separate entities? I think it's separate. You know, I, I know many of the candidates. And if you talk to them, they'll say when they are doing town halls, in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, people aren't asking about impeachment or they get relatively few questions about impeachment. Uh, they're talking about health care, education, jobs. Uh, you know, look, ultimately, for the vast majority of Democratic voters, their number one priority is beating Donald Trump. And so people are focused on what's happening in Washington, but that by and large doesn't affect the day-to-day lives of most Americans. Uh, it may trouble them uh, that they have a president who uh, is being uh, alleged to have engaged in this kind of improper and probably illegal contact uh, conduct. But um, they're focused on their everyday lives, and that's what Democratic candidates are trying to talk about on the campaign trail. Now, this is I'm happy. I'm handicapping this, so um, you have no one to blame but me. But it seems, uh, from my vantage point, the questions abound uh, about former Vice President Joe Biden's ability to run an effective multi-state campaign. There's questions about Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and their viability in the general election. And South Bend Mayor, who you mentioned earlier, Pete Buttigieg, uh, his ability to appeal to voters uh, beyond white voters. So, um, and, the, and the rationale being that opens the door for someone else. I'm wondering how, how you saw that particular aspect. I think you've fairly... Uh, characterize some of the obstacles that the top four candidates have to meet. I will say this is not unusual. You know, again, I go back to my experience with Barack Obama in 2007. Uh, There was a, uh, he he obviously generated a huge amount of excitement, but there was a lot of questions as to whether he would have a broad enough appeal. You'll recall back then, the front runner for most of 2007 was Hillary Clinton, John Edwards was a formidable candidate, Uh, Joe Biden, Chris Dodd, a lot of other people with uh, very impressive resumes were running as well. So, uh, and again, if you look at the 2016 Republican race, uh, Jeb Bush was the front runner. You had people like Chris Christie. Uh, Donald Trump was really sort of an afterthought for a good chunk of that time. And so this is not unusual. And um, these primaries will have a winnowing effect. And what's interesting though, is that it's not inconceivable that after these first four early states, you could have three different candidates or four different candidates who split these first four early states. Uh, And then it gets pretty interesting at that point because you have a successive series of Super Tuesdays uh, where, you know, the number of delegates, and that's really what this is about. It's about winning a majority of the delegates. Uh, You start to have large numbers of delegates that are gonna be awarded. You know, I think about that first Super Tuesday it has states like California and Texas and Virginia and North Carolina. And the number of delegates at stake will dwarf those first four early states, you know, many times over. Well, no, you, you, you make an interesting point because we, 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 we've sort of assumed that if you win Iowa and New Hampshire, if you win both of those, you've got some built-in momentum. But you could win Iowa, 
what I'm hearing you say, you could win the Iowa caucus to do Hampshire primary, the South Carolina primary, and then sort of get swooned under a, a tsunami of, of, of delegate votes if you lose those Super Tuesdays. Yeah, you know, look, in, in, traditionally for Democrats, the Iowa caucuses have determined who the nominee is. But just consider who the last three winners of the Republican Iowa caucuses were. Uh, it's Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Mike Huckabee. Uh, and none of them have become president. So um, it's likely or it's certainly not impossible that the winner of the Iowa caucus could be the nominee, and it's likely that person could not be the nominee. Uh, there will be, And I think this, this year in particular, because you have so many strong candidates and you have so much uncertainty among that top tier, uh, you know, I would not be surprised if, if, if the eventual nominee did not win Iowa. Now, assuming that the, 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 the reports are correct, uh, that some that comprise the Democratic establishment are not happy with the current field of candidates. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You sort of touched on it earlier. But as I recall, in 1992, Bill Clinton was not the presumptive favorite when that race started, nor, as you mentioned earlier, Barack Obama. So is, is some of this, until things play out, some of this uh, perceived panic unfounded? Yeah, Democrats really have a history of uh, hand-wringing, uh, or as my former colleagues often say, it's bedwetting that we do <laughs> at this period of time. And you could go back, and I was pulling articles even from 2012 when my boss, President Obama, was running for re-election, uh, that there was a lot of uh, angst that he could not win re-election. And so, look, this is, not, uh, uh, <laughs> this is not surprising in the Democratic Party. And you go back to 1976. I don't think anyone thought Jimmy Carter was going to be uh, the heavy favorite as well. And so, uh, and that's what makes this exciting. You know, for those of us that are political junkies, uh, we love, we love the, the back and forth. Uh, and really what this is about is obviously there's, you know, the, the media wants to frame this in, in various ways, but ultimately winning these elections is about having a coherent message uh, of change. Democratic Party really is the party of change, uh, but it's about having organization on the ground. You know, I, I think back when President Obama, when uh, Senator Obama announced he was running for president, uh, we put an enormous staff on the ground in Iowa. We had organizers who were living in Iowa and, you know, part of the community, going to church uh, in their communities, um, engaging in social activities with people in the community, and really just, and, and that organization is ultimately what catapulted us to victory in Iowa. Uh, but even after Iowa, um, we went and continued to slog out for about four or five months with Hillary Clinton to win the nomination. And so these things don't happen easily. Uh, it really requires organization and ultimately money uh, in, in this kind of media age where you just can't have uh, people on the ground. You need to be advertising. And so there's a lot of factors at play here. And as you mentioned at the outset, there's so many candidates uh, you know, it's it's not improbable to think that one of them could catch fire uh, in the next couple of months. So with that said, what does it say to you that, that, that former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick has entered the race at this point? Well, I'll be honest. I, I, I have the greatest respect for, for Governor Patrick, not only his record in Massachusetts, but also uh, serving as Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights during the Clinton administration. But it's hard for me to see what his his path forward is and what lane he's trying to fill that's not already filled. Uh, you know, and, and again, as we said, I mean, 
campaigns ultimately require organization and, and money. Uh, and at this point, he's acknowledged that his campaign has neither. Um, but, you know, I, look, I, and I don't know if this is some amount of buyer's remorse where he, you know, he made the decision earlier in the year not to run, whether he's thinking, you know, I should have run. Uh, but I will tell you from knowing many of the candidates, including some of them who have already dropped out, uh, people got a fantastic records um, and, and a, a fantastic theory for why they're going to be the next nominee. And executing on that is always much harder than it seems from the outside. You know, I, I'm not um, asking you to, uh, to, to to bash Governor Patrick when I, with this next question, but it all, the first thing when I heard he was running, the first thing that struck my mind is, okay, we have a Democratic uh, nominee for the president who is currently at Bain Capital. Um, as, <laughs> as I recall, in 2012, that was an issue on the other side. How, how would that possibly work out in, in a Democratic field? You know, look, I, I, I'm not sure that I'm necessarily representative of, of a prog progressive activist uh, in, in Iowa or New Hampshire. You know, from my perspective, uh, I, I'm not sure it makes a difference one way or another. I go back and look at his record uh, of public service, uh, you know, the upbringing he had and, and overcoming obstacles to become who he's become. But I think that will make a difference to people the same way that I think, you know, if, if Mayor Bloomberg decides to jump in the race, his great wealth will be seen as a liability. Um, and so, look, I mean, this is, you know, and, and different things matter for different candidates, uh, for different uh, voters. And, and so in this race, this is why you get to see, you know, mayors running, governors, senators, vice presidents. Uh, you get people like Andrew Yang who have never served in public service. So um, everyone has a theory of the case. And so uh, we'll see which one actually proves out to be correct. And I want to stay, I want to stay with um, Governor Patrick for just a second because 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 it just struck me you know when we talked about the the, the uh, primary map for the Democrats does does his entering the race slightly more than sixty days before Iowa and then the week later New Hampshire does New Hampshire the New Hampshire primary becomes becomes bigger for him you know it probably does obviously Massachusetts being a neighboring state. Uh, he has uh, an advantage there. On the other hand, uh, Senator Warren is also from Massachusetts, uh, a neighboring state. Uh, Senator Sanders is from Vermont, a neighboring state. Uh, the New Hampshire primary is also sort of an interesting primary because it's an open primary, which means you don't need to just be a Democrat to run, so uh, to, to vote in that primary. So independents, Republicans can cross over and vote. Uh, and you think that might actually help a moderate candidate like a uh, a Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg. So with each one of these candidates, I can make a argument as to why New Hampshire favors them. <laughs> if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Chris Liu, senior fellow of uh, the University of Virginia's Miller Center. He also worked on the presidential campaigns of John Kerry and Barack Obama and later served in the Obama administration as deputy secretary at the Department of Labor. And he has so many other uh, positions, but we just do not have time to engage in the entire CV. But, Chris, uh, I want to ask you, what are superdelegates and, and, do they play, and will they play a role in 2020? Well, I, I actually am a superdelegate, so I can tell you exactly what they are. Um, the, um, there are members of the Democratic National Committee. There's, like I think, 440 members of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, we are also called superdelegates. Um, some are 
elected through their state parties. Um, some are chosen by the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. On top of that, members of Congress, Democratic members of Congress, Democratic governors are also uh, superdelegates. Um, so we have um, a vote like everyone else. Uh, that being said, uh, one of the rules changes of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, over the last couple of years is to reduce the influence of superdelegates. Uh, the perception, and I should say it's the perception versus the reality, is that superdelegates have swung the race um, against the will of voters in previous years. Uh, that's never been the case. Uh, the nominee and the Democratic nominee in previous years has always been the person who both won the most number of votes, um, won the most number of delegates in primaries and caucuses, and had the most number of superdelegates. Uh, but I think in an effort to um, really allow the decision to be made by voters as opposed to uh, party leaders, um, our, our role as superdelegates was minimized. And what it means is that on the first ballot, uh, we don't have a uh, say. Uh, the, but if it goes to a second ballot, meaning if there is um, the candidates can't win a majority of the delegates and the superdelegates are allowed to vote at that period of time. And, and you know, and I suspect you know better than I, that how much of politics is driven by perception. And certainly those in the Sanders camp in the 2016 election would, would put a lot of the blame, uh, rightly or wrongly, on, on the superdelegates. But why was that perception even out there? Could you, could you elaborate on that? Well, look, I mean, I, and that perception precedes the 2016 race. I mean, I, as somebody who was with Barack Obama, well, when he came to Washington as a U.S. senator in 2007, 2008, you know, we, we early on, um, Obama had so much grassroots enthusiasm, um, even before anyone started voting. Um, and we had a lot of leaders who were um, grassroots leaders who were endorsing him in Iowa. And, you know, as those, that was significant. And, you know, we'd open the paper and say, oh, CO, ex-superdelegate just came out and supported Hillary Clinton. And so there is a sense that uh, these superdelegates, while they're only just one person, um, they create this sense of inevitability around candidates. They give them momentum. Um, they're perceived as sort of putting their thumb on the scale. And so, uh, you know, the, and I, I think this was the right decision to make, uh, which is, you know, I as a superdelegate can endorse anybody I want to endorse, but I don't have the ability to vote for that person uh, at the convention uh, unless there is not a majority. And I think that makes sense. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, Democrats are the party of the people. Uh, we should allow these decisions to be made by the voters uh, without any undue influence from uh, superdelegates. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the Electoral College map, and these are my words, something short of an apocalypse, I, I would argue that uh, a blind orangutan with stage three cancer and Alzheimer's disease, if it were the standard bearer of the Democratic Party, would, it, would get 249 electoral votes. What does it require for any candidate, if you accept that 249 number, what does it accept for any candidate on the Democratic side to garner that remaining 11 needed to win the presidency? Well, yeah, I agree with the premise of your question. I would say that the Electoral College map has shifted significantly in recent years. You know, prior to 2016, we always thought that there was this blue wall 
that went not only the East Coast, West Coast, but much of the Midwest. Uh, we learned that that wall is not as impenetrable as we thought it was. Uh, Donald Trump obviously won Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, which were three states that um, um, uh, that Democrats had always won. And then I go back to 2008. I mean, you know, I, people forget Barack Obama won Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, and, and Indiana. Indiana, yeah. Which surprised a lot of people. So, oh, I should also say, you know, when Barack Obama won Virginia in 2008, that was the first time a Democrat had won Virginia since 1964. Yeah, LBJ. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and Virginia is now very much of a blue state. That's going to be hard for any Republican to win. So, yes, I mean, the way that polarization happens uh, in this country right now, whoever the major party nominee is, will get easily 200-plus electoral votes. That just will not be shifted. But there is, you know, about 100, 200 in the middle uh, that can be swayed. Um, right now, it happens to be the upper Midwest states that are in play. But, you know, look, Arizona is as much in play this year uh, as Florida was in previous years. Uh, Ohio seems to be moving sort of out of Democratic uh, the corner. Uh, and North Carolina is increasingly in play. Um, so, look, I don't think as a nominee, Democratic nominee, you run, you, you create a message for those couple of states. You come up with a message that appeals broadly to Americans, whether you live in urban, suburban, rural areas, regardless of your color, regardless of your uh, socioeconomic status. And if you've got a convincing message, you will win the Electoral College. I just want to go back to the 2016 for just a moment, because if you take some of those Midwestern states that Hillary Clinton lost, um, if you if she had a reversal of fortune in total in those three states of 77,000 votes, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And you worked on the Kerry campaign. If she, and if she had John Kerry-like turnout, we wouldn't be having this conversation. So does any of that play into this? Or you, or you think it's, it's, it's we've gotten to a point, of, uh, it's a game changer in some respects? Yeah, I mean, look, it, the other thing I think to recognize is that just the changing demographics of the country. Um, Democrats now are winning smaller percentages of white voters now than they did not only when John Kerry ran, but when Bill Clinton ran. Uh, and yet they're winning um, uh, majorities in, in, in the popular vote, in part because the country's becoming more diverse. There are simply more people of color. And so it's, it's a little bit hard to extrapolate from one election year to another election year in terms of turnout. What it is fair to say is that there was a drop off uh, in voting and enthusiasm among African-Americans. Uh, and you saw that across the board from um, the Obama races in 2008 and 2012 to 2016. Uh, and African-American voters, specifically African-American women voters, are really the most um, solid, dedicated part of the Democratic Party. So um, even as you reach out to swing voters in those key Midwestern states, you need to make sure that your base is sufficiently energized enough to come out and vote. And with that said, um, would it be presumptive to suggest that the electoral map, at least on paper, still favors the Democratic Party, as it has in, in, in recent years? I mean, you've only had one Republican win the popular vote this century. Yeah, no, I think it certainly does. And I, but, I, but I do think uh, the, the demographics are shifting a little bit. You know, I think the Midwest, which had traditionally been Democratic territory, 
um, I think in part because of the decline of unionization, um, has, I think, hurt the Democratic Party um, in terms of uh, getting those white working class voters to uh, vote Democrat. The result, the, the, the flip side, however, is that states like Arizona, uh, which are becoming more diverse, uh, North Carolina, you know, even Florida to some extent, and I think ultimately Texas, um, I think those, putting those states in play, Georgia, I should mention as well. So we may be seeing kind of a slow changing of the electoral map. Uh, but it'll take a while. Well, when was the last time Louisiana had a governor that won back-to-back uh, -back terms, was reelected? So, I'm not, yeah, I, no, boy, I'm not, I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, no, and I, and I think, but I think it speaks more broadly. I mean, I think the fact that both John Bell Edwards uh, and Andy Bashir won, I think, is notable. These are conservative Democrats, um, and, and they won because they had a conservative message. They were good candidates. But I think, as importantly, they ran up huge totals in suburban areas in their states, and they were able to keep down some of the losses that Democrats generally suffer uh, in rural areas. And I think that's really kind of the formula for Democrats. You have to get your base to come out, uh, but you just can't lose those rural areas by large margins, the kind of large margins that Hillary Clinton lost them by in 2016. Mm. And then, you know, I want to switch gears ever so slightly and um, talk about some of your work at the Miller Center. And, and um, first of all, um, talk about what the Miller Center is and specifically what you do. So the Miller Center uh, at the University of Virginia is a research institution um, that, that provides a historical perspective on the presidency. It is uh, one of the foremost um, research institutions uh, that, that looks at uh, not only current issues involving the presidency, but historical issues. Um, they've got a fantastic project uh, that has done the oral histories of every president uh, going back to President Ford. Um, so one of the important projects I'm working on is the oral history project involving the Obama administration, which we've now just recently kicked off, uh, as well as you know speaking, moderating, writing, uh, about current issues of the presidency with a historical perspective. Hmm. Uh, and um, if, if people wanted to get more information about that work, because I'm, I'm, it's, it's important work, and I think it, it, that's the kind of, it's the kind of work that you have a more uh, enlightened populace when you, when you understand those types of things. How could someone uh, uh, find out more about that effort that you're currently engaged in? Well, I would say, look, the Miller Center is easy to find. Just Google the Miller Center. And, I, and we've got some wonderful resources that I think are especially relevant right now on impeachment. Uh, one of the major research projects the Miller Center has engaged in over the years um, has been uh, chronicling uh, the, the Oval Office conversations and tapes of presidents like Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon. Uh, we've got an amazing wealth of resources on the Nixon impeachment, Watergate. We've got scholars that have written about this topic for years. And I think especially as we look at this moment in time with the potential impeachment of the current president, it's helpful to look backwards as to what, uh, you know, the last time or one of the last times uh, we had an impeachment back in 74. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that um, because too often in the public discourse, um, not to criticize any of my colleagues, but we take, okay, Nixon had an impeachment inquiry. 
um, Bill Trump, Bill Clinton had an impeachment inquiry. And therefore, now Donald Trump has one, and we just try to lay those past events on top of this one. And do you, are, with the work that you do, are you concerned that in the public discourse we miss some of the nuances which makes each one of those situations unique? Yeah, no, I think that's an important point. I mean, I think, um, you know, if you go back and look at the Bill Clinton impeachment, and um, among my many jobs in government, uh, I was deputy chief counsel of the House Oversight Committee back in the late 90s, so during the time of the Clinton impeachment. And, you know, Republicans, virtually every Republican in the House of Representatives and the Senate, uh, believed that President Clinton lying in a deposition was an impeachable offense. So they've place that benchmark that 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 uh, benchmark right there and so if you believe that lying to uh, in a deposition is impeachable then you have to evaluate uh, President Trump's current conduct in those ways or if you go back and look at President Nixon's impeachment uh, there were three articles of impeachment against him uh, obstruction of justice obstruction of Congress and abuse of power and look at the various counts that are in those articles of impeachment. Uh, in many ways, you can match them up to what's happening right now with this uh, Ukraine scandal. And that, so I do think it's important, as you look at this moment in time, to put it in a context of history, because I think history tells you uh, how one should measure uh, the seriousness of these allegations. But, but, but in, in the current situation, uh, in defense of President Trump, too, we don't yet have that proverbial smoking gun. Is that, as you look at that, would that be is that is that necessary, or do we have to have that smoking gun to for the Congress to make what to do something it is it has never done before, which would be well, to impeach and convict the president? Well, I'll, I'll disagree, and I'll say actually, you know what we know the smoking gun is is the transcript of the July twenty fifth phone call between President Trump and. Uh, his Ukrainian counterpart. Um, him asking for a favor, though, uh, in many ways is his admission that there was something that was going on. You know, the irony, and it's kind of the reverse of what happened in Watergate. In Watergate, there was lots of testimony um, about what the president may or may not have done, but it, they didn't have the president's words. And it was only when the smoking gun tape was finally released after, you know, about a year of litigation that went all the way up to the Supreme Court did people actually get to see what the president knew about the Watergate break-in and what he did in terms of a cover-up? Here, the situation is reversed. We have the president putting out uh, the transcript of his call. In, in my mind, it's damaging. So for everyone who says, read the transcript, I have read the transcript. Uh, I think on its face, it does um, provide uh, evidence of an impeachable uh, conduct. What we're doing now is filling in all the gaps. And what we're now learning is that it was not just one isolated phone call. Uh, it was a coordinated series of actions that really kind of spanned over a year uh, where the career officials uh, at the National Security Council, State Department were essentially sidelined so that a small group of loyalists, political loyalists to the president could then engage in their own foreign policy initiative that was not aimed at sort of broadly uh, rooting out corruption in Ukraine, but was really aimed at how do we go out and do an investigation of Vice President Biden and his family? So what the testimony we've been hearing last week and we'll hear this week really is sort of building this case and sort of fleshing out what the favor the president asked for on July 25th and how extensive this actually was. And, and so I would argue that the analogy to Watergate is a pretty uh, apt analogy. 
but obviously this will be a decision that's uh, made by members of Congress, and, and it'll be influenced heavily by public opinion. How, how do we finally, how do we, is there a way to, to at least get, get to this point? N- these are my words that we have gotten to a point, we, we, when we began this conversation, before we went on the air, we talked about you being a Nationals fan. I happen to be a Giants fan. So if Clayton Kershaw, who I despise because he's a Dodger, if Clayton Kershaw put on a Giants uniform, he would be my guy. And so, But how do we get past that in, in terms of politics where if, if my side does it, there's nuance and, you know, and, and um, uh, extenuating circumstances. But if your side does it, you know, we must condemn them. How can we get to a point where we put the values of the country, the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, we put those higher than party? Yeah, I, I boy, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be. Uh, <laughs> oh, you get um, you'd have two hundred seventy electoral votes. <laughs> I would exactly, and and I think it's important to understand, as I said, you know, uh, to under to, to look at this impeachment in the historical context of the last two, but also to understand we live in a much different world than uh, was the case in the nineteen seventies or the uh, the nineteen nineties. You know, back in the nineteen seventies, there was polarization. Um, but you had a media that was essentially three major networks. And when those three major networks came out and said, you know what, the president has engaged in this conduct, people by and large believed it. Uh, We're now operating in a whole new media environment where you can essentially uh, watch whatever uh, network uh, uh, reinforces your pre-existing views. And so it's one of the reasons why uh, views of this president are as um, hardened as they are. I mean, it's interesting. The last three presidents we've had, President Bush, President Obama, and President Trump, um, have been the three most polarizing presidents in recent years. Um, and I would argue certainly President Trump is polarizing because of his own actions. But I think it also just reflects a changing um, tribalism that we have in this country right now, not only among voters, but also among the media as well. And I don't know how we get back to um, let's just say, a more normal country where we put uh, uh, we put country above party. Chris Liu, uh, University of Virginia, Miller Center. I want to thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Uh, my pleasure. It's been a great conversation. You can follow Chris Liu at Twitter at Chris Liu, L-U-44, Chris Liu 44. Stay tuned for my closing remarks. Welcome back. This week commemorates the 156th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. In 275 words, in what is arguably the greatest speech in American history, Lincoln captured the high bar staked out by America's past, its violent and frayed present, and the embers of hope that represented its future. Listen as actor Jeff Daniels recites the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, 
Our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here, dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. Our archive broadcasts are located at our website, which is publicmorality.com. You can also subscribe to The Public Morality on iTunes. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Uh,